Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at newbalance.com. On episode 303 of the Tennis Files podcast, you'll learn how to achieve optimal performance and decrease stress with Jeff Sausenstein. Welcome to the Tennis Files podcast, bringing you advice from the top minds in tennis to help you improve your game. And now, here's your host, Mehrban Iranshad. Hey there, and welcome to another episode of the podcast. This is Mehrban, and it's a pleasure to have you listening. I've been Playing a lot more tennis these days, playing in 10 0 mix uh, matches and my Arlington County League as well, uh, men's doubles, mixed doubles. So it's been super fun. Also, been working on my serve a lot lately. I actually changed my grip to a stronger continental, shifting it a bit to the left. I'm a right hander, of course. And so that's actually helped a lot. So uh, it's it's been interesting, though. Definitely a process. And you know, you've got to commit yourself to, to you know, trying it and, and messing up and, and going back to it. So been really enjoying the process, though. But for today's episode, we're actually going to be talking about the mental game with Jeff Sausenstein, who has been on my podcast and summit numerous times. In case you don't know about Jeff, he broke the top 100 in the world for the first time at the age of 30, uh, reaching number 100 in singles. And number 69 in doubles, and he's also the founder of Tennis Evolution. He is a USCA high-performance coach, USPTA elite professional, and highly sought-after mental performance coach. Jeff has recently made a transition to keynote speaking and corporate coaching. And in this episode, you're going to learn uh, a lot of great stuff, including uh, the biggest detractors to optimal performance, uh, what a simple but powerful daily routine is to help with performing optimally, uh, where stress comes from, uh, is all stress bad, how you can turn stress into a positive, uh, the different key buckets that you need to be aware of regarding the mental game, a lot of commonalities among top performance, uh, why you sabotage your performance and what to do about it, and much more. So I really hope that you enjoy this interview with Jeff that I did a, a while back. and. Definitely take some notes and put them into practice. Uh, that you know the most important things that you find that you resonate with. So, with that, uh, I will turn the inter or the episode over to the interview. So enjoy it, uh, Jeff. Thank you so much for speaking with me and for uh, educating us. It's always great to uh, have you on. Thanks for having me, Marabon. I'm really looking forward to sharing stories and perspectives and even strategies to help the listeners uh, perform at higher levels and be able to decrease stress on and off the tennis court. Yeah, it's going to be very exciting for me. Um, you know, I've just learned so much from you over the years, you know, where it was, uh, you know, technical analysis beforehand or mental game strategies. And today we also have something kind of, I guess, more on the mental side. So I guess, um, you know, there's going to be a fair bit of a fair amount of people who maybe don't know, you know, your full tennis story. So I was wondering if maybe you could cover some of that. I'd love to. I will take you through 
uh, I will take you through the story arc. And then of course you can fill in the gaps if any, if I left out anything, or if you want to drill into that. So uh, background real quick uh, is, well, actually let me, I'll do, I'll, you know what I'll do is I'll start with a story. So the story I like to start with is my 1997 US Open second round match against Michael Chang. Uh, it's a night match. There's 24,000 people inside Arthur Ashe Stadium. It's the first year of the Arthur Ashe Stadium that they started playing matches there. So uh, time flies when you're having fun. And uh, John McEnroe on the call, millions of people watching on TV. <clears throat> and I started playing incredible tennis in the first set against Michael Chang after some early nerves. And I broke Chang's serve and got up 5-4 in the first set. I was serving at set point, and I was known for my serve, so definitely advantage, an advantage to be serving at set point against Michael Chang. And I hit my best serve, which is a wide slice, and I came into the net serving volley. I hit a backhand volley to the open court just out of Chang's reach, and I won the first set. And when I won the first set, you know, there's the little fist pump, and then I, I looked around, I could see so many people just standing up and like pointing at me, like, where did this guy come from? Like, who is this guy? We don't even know who he is. He's ranked 140 in the world and he's taken down Chang. And I remember just kind of walking back to the baseline and I have this little smirk on my face and the TV cameras catch it. And that's when I tell people that's when the match ended which is crazy to think because we'd only played one set and it's a three out of five set match. But the reason that the match ended was because internally the thoughts and the limiting beliefs that I had inside me were, thank God you didn't embarrass yourself tonight. And my thoughts created my reality. My set point, my baseline was just don't embarrass yourself in front of the world tonight. Don't lose 6-1-6-1-6-1. You know, make it an interesting, entertaining match. And so I succeeded. I achieved my goal. I got to the level of my thoughts. And so um, I ended up losing that match in four sets and signed with an agent the next day. So a lot of players or people thought that I was on my way to the top 50 in the world. And I like to start with that story because what I think it shares, it, what, it, what it exposes is that, um, yes, I was doing extraordinary things on a tennis court and I achieved an elite level as a tennis player, but I also am very ordinary, like millions and billions of other people out there with our limiting thoughts, with our limiting beliefs. And those are, that's one way that we can hold ourselves back on and off the tennis court. And so with that story, um, if you have a question, Amir Bon, I'll, I'll, I'll be quiet for a moment. Otherwise, I'll continue and kind of go backtrack to give people a little more context behind my background leading up to that Chang match and beyond. Yeah, thanks for pausing, Jeff. Um, yeah, I just can't help myself asking questions here. But I, I guess, and you probably will cover this a bit later as well, but um, I mean, how would you have ideally reacted? Would it be something like, you know, you win the first set and you say something like, um, still a long way to go, or like, I mean, how would you have maybe self-talked your, your way differently? Yes. Yeah, so first of all, leading up to that match that day at the U S open, I remember, I think I warm up three or four times that day for the night match. So oh, wow. to warm up that many times suggests that you don't trust yourself. You, I actually thought I might forget how to hit the ball in front of people, which is a completely irrational fear and thought, but those are thoughts that we all have. 
And so I think this level of anxiety, this baseline level of anxiety that I had leading up to the match was very intense. It's very energy draining. We're going to get into that uh, a little bit on how people can work with their energy and the anxiety that comes up in our daily lives and, and at work with the daily stress and also on the tennis court. So I think having a routine around uh, breathing, um, being able to talk to someone about it, uh, being able to have a, a story that I'm living into every day and I'm brainwashing my thoughts uh, my with and, and changing my beliefs so that they my behaviors and my actions are more congruent with someone who's a top 50 player or a top 10 player. Um, in the moment, I think um, certainly the sly smile after winning the set suggests that I was kind of content or happy to be there. If you watch Rafa Nadal or the other greats, it's pretty rare that they win the first set and they start smiling, right? So I think having, um, and it's great to have fun on the court, but I think having a level of intensity and and as you alluded to this idea of like, okay, you got the first set, um, let's clamp down now, you know, let's buckle down. Cause I did take the foot off the gas uh, my level dropped about three to 5%, wasn't able to maintain it. That's what the top 10 players in the world, they maintain that level for a long period of time. So I think a combination of things I described would have helped me handle the moment better. Gotcha. Thanks, Jeff. And yeah, that's my only follow-up question for now. Yeah. So let me, let me take the listeners back uh, to how it all started. Uh, my father was my first coach. He was a division one tennis player at the University of Northern Colorado, Go Bears. And uh, he ended up teaching tennis in the Midwest and I was born in the Midwest and I had a racket in my hand at a young age for fun, you know, no pressure. My dad wasn't trying to make me a star, uh, but he did want to expose me to the sport early and my mother was a player. And so I just started at a young age. I had exceptional hand-eye coordination and actually exceptional feet too. So pretty lucky to have two very athletic parents who got me started in sports early, not just tennis, but other sports. And so uh, that just started the journey with tennis, the love for tennis. And I think the bug really hit when I started winning trophies at age eight. Uh, I was number one in the state at, at nine years old as a 10 and under. Um, my stepfather was also a big influence on me, which we may go into a little bit today, um, some storytelling there. And he really helped me just forge my mental game and, and to develop character and, and uh, class on the court. Um, so my parents were really big on sportsmanship and handling yourself with class, winning, winning or losing. And so um, I actually won more sportsmanship awards. Uh, I was kind of the goody two-shoes of the tennis, junior tennis circuit, you know. Um, nice. I won more of those awards than I did actual gold balls. I won one gold ball. I was a national champion at age 12. Um, and this is where the, the story gets interesting. Because at 12 years old, when you're number one in the country, you're a bit of a phenom or you're you know, on a track to do great things. <clears throat> and what happened to me was really unique. You know, I didn't grow. I was a late bloomer at 15 and a half. I was five foot four, 102 pounds. Uh, I could barely see over the steer steering wheel with my driver's permit. And um, I went to Kalamazoo uh, my first year 16s and I lost first round singles, first round doubles and first round back draw. Now in tennis terms, we call that a triple crown. Uh, that's not a good triple crown. Like in horse racing, when you win all three races, when you lose all three matches in a national tournament, people are starting to talk like that guy got triple crown and it's embarrassing. It's humiliating. And at 15 and a half, you think back three years earlier, I was winning this tournament. 
So that was a big pivotal moment for me, you know, and a lot of teenagers who are struggling with self-esteem and confidence, like I was at that time, that's maybe a time where you quit or you pack it in or you start hanging out with your friends more. Well, um, my parents and, and we all kind of came together and they challenged me a little bit, but I challenged myself. And within a year, I turned it around. I got back to the basics and the fundamentals and I was top five in the country. A year after that, Stanford came calling. I got a lucky break there and Coach Gould came calling and offered me a half scholarship that I accepted. And I went there and played for my dream school. You know, coming from Colorado wasn't a tennis hotbed. I didn't play five hours a day. So going from Colorado where I played about an hour a day or an hour and a half to Stanford was a big jump up for me. And I rose to the occasion, you know, your environment, you often raise to the level of your environment. So Stanford was a great stepping stone for me. Coach Gould was great for me taught me many leadership lessons. <clears throat> and uh, an interesting defining moment there was after my freshman year, I had gone 22 and four my freshman year at number five single. So I knew how to win, but I didn't have any weapons. I mean, my weapons was my, my weapon was my mind and my smarts and my strategy. And that's probably what made me a, a, a decent coach or a good coach, whatever you want to call me, um, and kind of knowing the game at a young age. After my freshman year, I had this crappy serve wasn't breaking hundred miles an hour. And I went home to Denver, Colorado to try to tweak it. And I started modeling Goran Ivanisevic. He was another lefty. And I modeled his serve. I, I grew three inches. I gained 20 pounds and I modeled Goran's serve. And I added 20 miles an hour to my serve almost overnight. And I think that story speaks to a couple of things for the listeners uh, to, to consider. Number one, uh, it's always possible to make a massive jump in your game if you get the right information and, and you, you're you willing to try some different things. You can have a breakthrough. And number two, just the sheer um, perseverance and the resilience to bounce back when you have a crappy serve or a crappy thing going on in your tennis game or in your life, you can change. You can get better. And so that's really one of my big messages around bouncing back and uh, perseverance and also believing that you can really change, that you can make positive changes to brainwash your mind that that's possible. So I go back to Stanford after I won, uh, after I transformed this serve and Coach Gould was shocked and he was so shocked. He said, well, you're, you're a servant volleyer now and you're going to play number two this year. So I went from being a scrappy baseliner with no serve Kind of like Andy Roddick, when he transformed his serve at 14 or 15, he was a scrapper and then he became this big server. That's what happened to me at a, you know, at a lower level than what Roddick did. So I played number one singles my junior and senior year. We won two national titles. I was a part of one, uh, one of Coach Gould's three undefeated seasons my junior year. Uh, just learned so much. Probably the, the most memorable years of my life in tennis were playing for Stanford. And then I went out on the pro tour and just one year in, I got to 140 in the world when I played Chang and I was, the, you know, up and come. I was going like this with my career. <clears throat> Three months after uh, I was playing pickup basketball, I came down for a rebound and I uh, felt a sharp pain in my ankle and it was misdiagnosed for eight months. I eventually had surgery and that became this, this two-year odyssey. It began where my body was breaking down. So 25 years old, I had two surgeries. I had many other injuries. My, my arm was falling off. I uh, felt like it was going to fall off. And I thought about quitting then. You know, it, was, it wasn't, was not in the cards for me. But I recalibrated and I became obsessed with all things high performance. I studied spirituality and mindset and nutrition, just this growth mindset to learn everything I could about the human body. 
And I was able to bounce back and I broke the top 100 in the world for the age, at the age of 30 and went on to play in the main draw of all the Grand Slams. So that's my tennis arc story. I tried to get through it as, as fast as I, as I could. Um, I'll stop there because I'm sure you have questions. Um, but what I want to reiterate is that, you know, there were three defining moments, I would say, in my career. Well, probably four. I skipped one of them. But the one was the junior, you know, the change when I was 15, when I was really down and out. The second was my serve transformation. And then the third was the injury bug where instead of accepting what the doctors were telling me, I went on an odyssey to try to change things. And I did. I was able to change my body and my mind and my spirit and, and become a better player in my 30s than I than I was in my 20s. Love that, Jeff. A lot of um, you know, great golden nuggets in there. So I guess one is I'm curious, you mentioned the, you know, you had a pivotal moment when you were, as they say, triple crowned. Um, and you said you mentioned that you went back to the basics and the fundamentals. So I was wondering if you could speak a little bit more to what exactly you mean by going back to the the fundamentals. Sure. So a couple things happened. Uh, at that time, I was small and other kids were growing. They were bigger than I was. And I had a coach that convinced me to change to a Wilson profile. And that was the worst decision I ever made equipment wise because that racket didn't support. It just didn't give me the control I needed. So I switched back to an original racket, like a Wilson Pro Staff or a Wilson Sting. I can't even remember what I was playing with then or a Wilson Ultra 2, something, some, Wilson Sting or Pro Staff. So I changed rackets. Um, I quit all the sports that I was playing. So I went all in. I doubled down on tennis. I wasn't skiing anymore. I wasn't playing basketball. So obviously I had more time to devote. But when I, <clears throat> when I went back to the basics, and I remember talking to my stepfather, he always would tell me he was a division one player. He played for the great Trinity teams back in the sixties. He would always say, go back to the basics, you know, keep your eye on the ball. I know it's super boring and, and the basics, but, and make sure you get your feet in position, get your body and your feet in position every single time. So it's kind of that Jimmy Connors model of just always getting your feet, have your feet be active and get into position. Nothing complicated certainly not as complicated as I've made it as a coach over the years. But um, I think that that level of focus on the footwork and the fundamentals, you know, get your racket back early. I know, again, that's not necessarily the things we teach now, but certainly when I was late on a backhand, it was, okay, get your racket back, you know? So I think a lot of those fundamentals really came, came into play during that time and really changing my attitude because you know, when you start getting down on yourself, when you're missing shots, you're not able to pull yourself out as fast. So I really had to make a, a mindset shift and have a greater grit and resolve when I did make mistakes. Yeah. You, uh, your comments made me think back to a lot of different, um, interviews I've done. One was with Michael Russell, um, great American player as well. And like one of his biggest points, uh, as well was footwork and just how important that is. And, you know, a lot of times we focus on uh, technique too much, you know, our swing when we're really just not in position in the first place. Um, and also I, I remember we did a, uh, you did a presentation, um, kind of on self-talk, I think, and where you had a student where she like really was uh, having trouble with her forehand. So you took her out and just had her say yes, every time she uh, made a forehand and that was uh, very pivotal. So, um, yeah, just uh, a lot of, a lot of good, good memories and great points you made now as well. Um, I guess one other thing, and I don't know if you want to cover this now or later, but, you know, it definitely piqued my interest when you talked about your stepfather's influence and, um, you know, on your sportsmanship and integrity yeah. and things like that. So I was wondering, you know, maybe for 
players out there who want to figure out how to influence their own players uh, or, you know, daughters or sons or whoever, um, you know, how maybe any other details about that? Absolutely. So my, my stepfather came into my life when I was nine years old. So I went through a divorce when I was four. And even though my parents got along, you know, when you're four years old and there's divorce, uh, that creates childhood adversity um, that, you know, when you're trying to make sense of the world, oh my gosh, my parents are split. I now won't no longer live with my father. He's in a different state. I see him a couple times a year. You know, that plays a big role. So here comes my stepfather at age nine, my parents, you know, remarried, you know, my parent, my mom remarried. And I, you know, I basically picked up a, a second dad and a successful man, uh, you know, a lawyer, a principled man, uh, a Vietnam veteran, a military man, um, you know, one that really prided himself on living a life of integrity, life class. So that's a that's a formidable, formidable male figure. So, you know, do not discount if you're listening to this and you have children or your coach or, you know, your father or mother, don't discount how your actions and how you show up in the world impacts what your children see. And so I saw positivity, you know, I saw hustle, I saw hard work, I saw grit, I saw perseverance, I saw intelligence. And he wrote me a champion's poem when I was 12. And this poem uh, was specifically written for me. And one of the reasons he did it is because I was so hard on myself. You know, I really would get down on myself. I was the guy that would put his head down and mope around the court. And after losing, I would cry. You know, mine wasn't an anger thing. Mine was like a, a deep, probably sadness. And um, my parents didn't know what to do with me sometimes. So he wrote me that poem to try to encourage me. And I started reading that poem. And maybe we can share it with the listeners in the show notes. But um, he, he gave me that poem. I used to read it all the time, almost every day at 12 years old. And I don't think it's an accident that 10 months after he gave me that poem, I won my only national championship, you know, in singles. And um, I continued to read that poem for years and then even into my adult life as a pro when I was down in the dump. And it's a beautiful poem. It came obviously from my stepfather, Miles. His name is Miles Cortez. It came from his heart. And uh, again, it was all about handling yourself with class, keeping your head high, you know, handle winning and losing the same way. A uh, really powerful poem that I share today when I keynote speak and I and when I do my presentations to companies, uh, I always share that because invariably there are adults in the audience, there are leaders and high performers, and they have children, and they're trying to figure out what to do with their children, how to keep them upbeat in today's day and age where there's a lot more health, mental health issues coming up for adults and children, and that poem has been a huge hit because. Uh, parents want ways to inspire their kids. And I think it helps them to hear that these words brainwashed me in a positive way to live a life of principle and of integrity. Awesome. Awesome. Love that. And would be honored to share the poem, uh, of course. Um, you know, Jeff, I know um, another talking point that we should definitely cover is, is, um, your brother's story as well. Yeah. Um, I remember you talking about him previously and I've seen him, uh, you know, on social media speaking, su you know, super impressive, really loved, um, watching his work. So yeah, maybe you can just share a bit about sure. it. So I'm 33 years old and I played on the tour for 10, 11 years. Uh, I'm starting to feel like I've run out of 
juice. I've run out of fire. I've run out of desire to be a pro tennis player, but it was scary, you know, changing careers, doing something that you've done since you were four years old. Uh, there was a lot of tears. There were a lot, there was a lot of grieving, you know, this is a deep relationship that I have with the sport of tennis. And I didn't know how to quit, to be honest. And I wanted to keep going. My head wanted to keep going. My heart wanted to stop. I didn't know how to do it though. And I remember I was visiting my, my, father, my stepmother, and my three half siblings that live in Florida and my brother, 17 years younger. And I, he was 17 at the time. I remember walking into his bedroom and he was laying on the floor, sprawled out on the floor, passed out uh, white foam coming out of his mouth. He'd been overrun by a cocktail of drugs. And in that moment, <clears throat> I knew I had to do something. So I, you know, got him into the car. I got him to the hospital. And from in that moment, uh, my pro career ended. So I made the decision. I didn't even think. I said, okay, I just witnessed my brother almost OD on drugs. He's 17 years old. He's not getting the help he needs. Maybe he doesn't want the help, but I've got to do something. And that was almost my excuse and my reason to quit because I couldn't do it for myself. I needed to do it for something bigger than myself, for my family and my brother. And so my brother and I are forever linked in, in with that story and then you know what's evolved over the years. And that's what got me to move back to Colorado to start coaching. And what was amazing about that, and that student you mentioned about the forehand and saying, yes, her name is Becca. And she went on to play division one tennis. When I moved home in the first three weeks of being home, I met her and her family and I gave her her first lesson when she was 10 years old. And um, that began the journey for coaching. And <clears throat> I realized in the first month of coaching that I loved that more than I loved playing in the grand slams. You know, some players love to play they love to compete on the big stage and some players or some people love to coach and you can have both, but generally I find you're, you're kind of in one or two camps where you really love that feeling of competing versus coaching and helping someone. And for me, it's heavily skewed towards service, towards helping others, towards coaching. And I think that's probably one reason why I've kind of created what I've created in tennis, because I just am so driven by helping others more than being a better tennis player myself. I had that life. I had that time where I went all in and that, you know, the tank was empty for that, that time in my life. And for me, I'm the type of person where when, <clears throat> when something has closed, it's time to move to the next thing. And so that's what I did with coaching. And I started coaching players and then I built tennis evolution and I really wanted to impact millions. And I hope that I've done that. And then, um, you know, now I've shifted, made this next shift outside of tennis. We still have tennis evolution running, of course, we're helping people there, but I've really shifted into the bigger pond of impacting more people around mental health, emotional health, optimal performance, decreasing stress. But it all started because of my brother's um, you know, seeing my brother lying there and of course lying there passed out and getting him into to rehab at that time. Now I'm happy to continue Maribon. You might have other questions where you want to steer me, but I know that we, we can also continue with Eric's story or, or circle back to it. And I'll, I'll close the loop on it. So I'll, I'll be quiet now and, and see if you've got anything else for me. Um, you know, Jeff, I think we can continue cause I'm sure I'll have a lot, a lot of different ones. Yeah. Sure. So, uh, with my brother, it was such an interesting relationship because we didn't live together. We didn't grow up together. I was almost like an uncle figure. I mean, definitely a big, big brother, even though we didn't live together 
And even though we lived different lives, I was the golden child. He was the black sheep. Uh, he uh, was pre um, prescribed Ritalin at nine or 10 years old because of ADD. And then um, he quit basketball kind of in his teenage years. And that's when he, I believe he started smoking weed then. And that escalated to that point when he was 17, when I found him lying on the floor. Uh, I tried to get him to come live with me. It didn't uh, work out because he used again after going into uh, rehab and he went back to Florida. And for the next five years from ages 18 to 23, it was a really tough time for him around addiction. Uh, I started dealing drugs um, and it, it led him to prison. He committed two felonies, um, could have gotten a life term with his two felonies in Florida. Uh, it turned out that he got four years and in four in, in prison, we were, by the way, we were not in touch during this time because he knew my stance that if you're going to use drugs and you're going to deal drugs, I'm not going to be in your life. Okay. It's just not going to happen. I'll love you from afar but I'm not going to be in your life. So he goes to prison and about a year into his prison term, he called me and he said, Jeff, I've had enough of this life, this gangster life, this trying to be someone I'm not. I want to change, but I don't know how. And so I tested him. I sent him a book, Awaken the Giant Within by Tony Robbins. And he read the book cover to cover and he transformed. He developed a value system. He learned the steps of how to change to make positive changes. And he started actually becoming a big leader uh, inside the prison. He um, started leading workshops. He mentored other inmates. He started meditating. He cleaned the toilets at five in the morning. He was journaling. And then he discovered that he had a hidden talent for public speaking. And he actually got second place in a big contest of like multiple prisons that was um, brought up in the local Tallahassee, Florida newspaper. And so he really was starting, believe it or not, to thrive, if it's possible, to thrive in prison uh, because he changed his way of doing things. He changed his actions, his behaviors, and he changed his mindset. And so he got out of prison uh, six years ago, and uh, we started this amazing connection where I mentored him around entrepreneurship around the online space, around coaching online. Um, and he was just a success. Everything he was doing, he was touching, was working. He uh, And he built this really successful uh, online coaching, business coaching program very quickly. That was the good. The dark side of it is a lot of the success came really fast. And <clears throat> unfortunately, he wasn't getting the support that he needed. And he didn't surround himself um in a community or with accountability. And unfortunately, he started using drugs again, um, the more serious drugs about three years, two and a half years ago. And it was really painful for me because we were so close and we were on a great track. He won a speaking contest. He got his own TED Talk. And I was his biggest fan. I was cheering him. I was hugging him. I was right there with him. Um, but when his behavior started to change because of the dark side, because of the demons, I wasn't able to be involved in his life the way that I wanted to. And that's a really difficult lesson. If you're listening to this, <clears throat> you've probably been touched by addiction in some way, shape, or form. And it's a very painful experience for the person and also for the people that love him and her. So <clears throat> unfortunately, seven weeks ago, my brother um, passed away and um, <clears throat> obviously very difficult for our family. Um, and I did the eulogy at the memorial service. Um, and what I really focused on is, you know, my brother is much more, <clears throat> excuse me, my brother is much more than his addiction. 
and people that are struggling with addiction are much more than their addiction. And, um, you know, being able to love them, uh, even if you have to detach with love, knowing that they're loved is important. It's something I probably could have done a better job of in, in retrospect, but, um, you know, he, this was, this life was a tough one for him. Uh, but in my eulogy and even the message that I have now, he's now with me in my keynote. Every time I present, I talk about Eric and how he transformed because if a convicted felon in a six by eight prison cell can transform his life in prison and then come out of it and have success, then we can do it too. And so <clears throat> my legacy or his legacy that I plan to carry on is the positive message and also to create awareness around the struggles with addiction and mental health. So this gives a lot more purpose behind what I'm doing with my life and my career and how I think I can impact millions of people uh, with my brother along for the ride. I mean, I've introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at newbalance.com. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDIC. I see, um, you know, huge <clears throat> condolences to you and your family. Um, um, I just want to ask you um, regarding, I guess, two points. You know, first <clears throat> off, the transformation was, uh, you know, incredible. Uh, just, I mean, if you looked at him uh, speaking and, and thriving in his online business, you would have no idea about, um, you know, the the struggles that he had. Uh, and then also I'm curious too, cause sometimes you, th you know, this pops up with like, uh, sports stars as well, where like they have, um, big success. And then I guess, I, I don't know, I'm, I'm curious, like, what do you think, what, what do you think happened? Like you have the success and then maybe you, I don't know, like want to have too much fun and then you go towards like old habits or something like that. Like, I'm just wondering, you know, maybe that's something we can also like protect against. So kind of a two-parter. Yeah. It's, uh, it's something that I'm, again, I'm very passionate about sharing my perspective as I continue to learn more. The first off, I alluded to the fact that he, uh, started on Ritalin at a young age. Uh, it's a, my belief and there might be some that disagree with me, but that's okay. This is about having open, honest conversation. I believe that, um, his brain at, at a young age was changed altered by taking substances, you know, one could argue that he needed it to focus. And then the counter argument could be, well, maybe there could have been more holistic ways to look at it. So I think his brain was changed at an early age. And I think my brother spent more time of his life being able to, or taking a substance to be able to cope in the world. So it was very familiar to him to take something, whether it was dr harder drugs or alcohol or uh, ADD medication, that was his normal. 
So to get him off of substances was very uncomfortable, right? He's addicted to something and his brain is addicted to something. So I think that's a big point is how can we develop ourselves mentally, emotionally, and physically without relying on, you know, medications for focus or, uh, or drugs, right? Uh, that's number one. Number two, <clears throat> I mentioned childhood adversity or childhood trauma with the divorce that I experienced. You know, the divorce for me could have led to a life of addiction or drugs or bad behavior. For me, the divorce uh, turned into a positive because I decided, well, in order for me to get love, I'm just going to be number one. And then everyone will like me and love me. That's probably what was going on on a very deep subconscious, unconscious level, right? So <clears throat> with my brother, when you are, when you're young and then he wanted to be the hotshot, you know, he wanted to be popular. He wanted to be liked. He wanted to be noticed. He wanted to be loved. Well, for him, it started with like selling CDs at school. And then it, it was candy and then CDs. He's like a natural entrepreneur, a natural salesman. Well, the next thing was, was drugs or, you know, eventually it became drugs. And I think if you're not developing that core self-esteem, the core self-worth, if the family unit is not aware of creating that environment, um, you're leaving some things to chance, right? Um, you know, making your kids play sports when they want to quit, I think they should continue to play sports, you know, they, or, or any, or, or music or any activity. You look at the Bob and Mike Bryan, they didn't have a TV. They played tennis and they played guitar and drums and that's it. And look at these guys now. Right. So not saying it's foolproof, but when you keep your kids busy and you're doing, you're doing activities like that, it's kind of hard to get in trouble. Um, so, and I think I forgot maybe part of your question, um, yeah. but ultimately, oh, I got it. I got it. So, so when you get to that position and it just happened in the news at the time of recording this, John ja Morant is, you know, was in Denver playing a game and at five in the morning, he's at a strip club with a gun uh, shooting his own Instagram video. Right. So I assume there's alcohol involved. And when we drink alcohol, it actually inhibits our ability to make good decisions. And so one is, is if you just can remove the alcohol, easier said than done for someone who's addicted. But if you, if you live an alcohol-free lifestyle, there are chances of making a decision like that going, go down, right? Um, but then I think these young people have a difficult time dealing with stress. They don't know how to deal with stress. Uh, John Morant has everything, right? $200 million contract. My brother was on his way to having anything he wanted. He was going to build a multi-million dollar brand. But I think the stress and the pressure of kind of upholding that level and always having to be at a certain standard without a kind of that deep spiritual foundation, the deep base, the, the basics, the foundation of what it takes to, to um, be grounded you know, and unfortunately, some people have to learn the hard way how to do that. But I think the stress really gets to these these rock stars and these athletes if they don't have a strong kind of if they don't have accountability or strong support system, um, they can make some choices that are that are dubious. Yeah, yeah, a lot to learn from that. And um, 
as you said, you know, he's always with you and, um, you know, his impact if he lives on. I saw some really cool, you know, testimonials as well um, from his students um, that he helped. So um, definitely, a, uh, you know, he's done a great job in impacting a lot of people. So, Jeff, I also want to ask you about, I guess, a bit more about your shift to executive coaching and kind of, you know, the, the principles that that you, um, you know, uh uh, help teach to towards your clients that obviously us as tennis players can also um, use to really positively impact um, how we perform. So the big principles that I teach are around optimal performance. And one of the biggest things that people can do to perform at higher levels is actually removing stress. So it's not about stacking more things to do. It's actually being able to handle the negative things and negative is a strong word. We'll get into stress and good and bad, but um, really analyzing how much stress you're under, understanding how to remove the stress, but of course, also applying principles. And, you know, optimal performance is a, it's an interesting concept, right? Because if we're high achievers and we want to perform at a high level on a tennis court or off a tennis court, we certainly don't want to be suboptimal. We don't want to play average. We want to play great every time. So it doesn't mean it happens every time, but we want to put ourselves in position. We want to do the right things every day that give us the best chance, that increase the odds to perform at optimal levels. An optimal level is just, you know, can you get the most out of yourself? Can you be the best version of yourself? And so fortunately, I've been studying performance for over 25 years as a, as a pro tennis, as a well, pro tennis player, as a coach as a tennis coach and then an online coach. And then now as an executive coach and a keynote speaker. And so I feel really comfortable speaking into how we can get there and we can do it. Um, there are three kind of three portals in, if you will, there's physical health or physical performance, there's mental health or mental performance, and there's emotional health or mental performance. Now you can, and all of them overlap. So sometimes when we're talking about mental health, we're also talking about emotional health too, and vice versa. When we talk about improving physical health, well, it's going to impact your mental and your emotional health. They all are intertwined. It's a holistic 360 degree approach to what I do. And I believe that if people adopt the principles that I share they'll see a dramatic upgrade in how they perform on and off a tennis court. And what I love about, you know, what I get to share and teach is again, I watched my brother make the biggest transformation that I've ever seen in my lifetime. And I saw how he did it. I saw the steps that he took. I witnessed it. He was my teacher. I was his teacher. Uh, it was great to just see as a coach to be able to learn and become a better coach from his example. And then I've obviously had years on a tennis court. I've had years playing and coaching to, and, and, and watching the best performers, you know, what did they do? What separates them from what makes them elite? And there are always these common, common principles, common strategies, common ways of doing things, the basics, the, the basic framework around performance. So, you know, it's a, it's a wonder for me, it's a wonderful platform uh, to be able to you know have a platform to be able to share this. And then going deeper, I've alluded to childhood adversity or trauma. That's going to be a, an even addiction. All of that, which we've touched on today is a place that I'm going. It's a place where I want to help create self-awareness that 
you know, what happened in our childhood matters. And we actually need to understand what we went through in order to perform. So if you're sabotaging yourself, if you're procrastinating, if you, you know, keep doing things that aren't in your best interest, there's a reason for it. And it doesn't have to be random and you don't necessarily need to take a pill to be able to correct it. I'm not saying that, you know, some people require medication to stabilize them. And that's important. I'm not going to get into that realm, but I, I want people to know that there are solutions. There are, you know, healthy ways to make shifts and maybe it can even be complementary with someone who is under the care of a physician or a therapist and they have to take medication for a period of time. So I'm here to just share the knowledge and the wisdom that I've developed as a pro athlete and as a coach um, and, and help people, you know, just be able to see things in a different way and be able to actually take action on it. Awesome. Awesome, Jeff. Um, yeah, I guess a lot of things in here. I guess the one that that was interesting for me is you mentioned how we we sabotage our, um, you know, our, our we should be performing something, for example, but we sabotage ourselves by delaying things, etc. I was wondering, um, you know, why does that happen? Because, I mean, you know, I've certainly done it. Most people have done it throughout their lifetime. So why do people do that? Right. So. Um, at, at the core, just to keep it real simple, um, there is a kind of inherent belief that we're all, first of all, we're all connected in this concept that if we're procrastinating or we're not reaching our goals, there is some limiting belief, uh, some thought, something in there that we're not good enough or that we don't deserve something or we don't love ourselves enough. You know, people that are that have high self-esteem, that have a strong foundation, they're more apt to take care of themselves, to do the self-care, um, to you know, get sleep, to um, eat well, to take care of themselves. There's and, and a lot of this is happening on an unconscious level. So this is not when I say, share these things, I'm not. There's no judgment. I'm not saying, oh God, gosh, this person can't do it, and they're a procrastinator, and they're lazy, and all of these behaviors that are not optimal are related to what's happening underneath the surface, not in our conscious mind. We can wake up every day and say, we're going to work out, we're going to train, we're going to eat well. And then four days later, we're back in the same pattern. And so what happens is the brain, the brain moves towards what's familiar. So, or the mind moves what's familiar. So even if it's not good for us, the brain will actually, or the mind will move towards what's familiar. And so when you try to make changes, that's why it's really hard to make changes because it will always default to the safety place of this is what I know. Change is unknown and discomfort and uncomfortable. So that's why there's resistance to change. So if you set the new year's resolutions and it's not happening, or if you set goals and it's not happening and you default to old behaviors, just know that that's natural. That's in our biology that we were designed to our brains designed to keep us safe. And so when we make those changes, when we try to make those changes, it's difficult because it's, it's uncomfortable and it's not familiar. So that's a big kind of a big concept around if you're procrastinating and you don't want to procrastinate anymore, just know when you try to stop procrastinating, one of the reasons is because you're actually in a familiar mode or protection mode around the behavior that you want to change. 
Yeah. So the question of the uh, decade, I guess, is how do you how do you not do that? How do you not default back to your uh, creature comforts, if that's the right terminology? Because it's so difficult um, for a lot of people <laughs> to not do sure. that. So first off is just self-awareness, right? Mm -hmm. So I would say most people are not even aware of kind of, maybe they're aware that they're procrastinating, right? They can say they're, but then, but then where, where do they go from there? They'll go like, why do I always procrastinate? You know, oh, I'm such a procrastinator. So they're speaking it into existence. So one way to do it would be to look at it and say, okay, I have a tendency to maybe don't even use the word anymore. Like I put things off a little bit. I now focus on taking action on this, on this behavior, or, you know, maybe it's the night before, and I'm just giving little steps kind of off the top. This is ne not necessarily part of my framework, but uh, you know, the night before, if you know that you have a, a tendency to procrastinate on certain things, the night before you get it in your calendar, you write it, you write down your top three things you're going to accomplish the next day in order to change the behavior and it's front and center. And so it requires self-awareness. It requires planning, you know, pre-planning, scripting your days, scripting what you want to accomplish. Um, accountability, that's a big one, you know, getting around people that want to do the same things instead of doing it alone. You know, my brother uh, did a lot of great things, but he also had help around him. When he struggled the most is when he suffered in silence and when he didn't reach for help, he didn't ask for help. So getting a coach uh, to change behavior, being accountable to a buddy is really important. Um, changing your languaging. And uh, again, we can go into, we could even go into deeper of like, you have to heal parts of yourself, the parts that were wounded when you were younger. So, um, you know, that's a, a limiting, you have to identify the limiting belief that came out of like when my father and my parents got divorced, there's a, like an abandonment of like, oh, I'm not good enough because my dad left. That's an unconscious thing that's happening. It's not like I'm consciously walking around saying to everyone, well, my, my parents got divorced, so therefore I'm not good enough. I'm not consciously doing that. I'm unconsciously doing that. 95% of what happens to us is all starting on this unconscious level. So, you know, getting into meditation, uh, getting coaching, counseling, therapy, understanding what your patterns are. A lot of people don't even know what their patterns are. So I'm a big believer, just know what your patterns are, know what you want to change. And um, my mind is like almost overactive with this stuff. I'm always looking at like, okay, I can see I'm falling short in this area. How do I, how do I make this shift? What, what behavior do I have to change in order to do so? And I, I'm writing in my phone all the time in my notes. I'll write down like the things, kind of the, these things that are coming up for me. Just journaling, bringing it to your awareness is, is the good starting point, point to, uh, to correct some of these bad habits, if you will. Yeah, a lot of, a lot of, again, great stuff in there, um, Jeff. So, I mean, you, I feel like you talked about a, a few of these, but I guess, what do you think is the the one biggest detractor to optimal performance? I mean, is it that, you know, the limiting, limiting beliefs or, I mean, the negative self-talk, maybe they're, you know, um, they go one uh, hand in hand. Um, what do you think it is? I think there's two that I'll just touch on. Uh, one, one is negative thinking. You know, negative thinking is like the kryptonite for an elite athlete or a high performer tennis player. Yeah. Um, 
you know, the, the research and the data, Christine Porath at Georgetown University uh, did the research on this with a, with a mental skills conditioning coach who's since passed away, Trevor Moad. What they found was that a negative thought is four to seven times more powerful than a positive thought. So imagine that if you say my backhand stinks one time, you probably need to say my backhand's amazing seven times just to offset that. So negativity is four to seven times more powerful. And then if you say things out loud, essentially, if you speak things into existence, it's 10 times more powerful than if you keep it to yourself. So think of like when you're out on the court and you say, you could think to yourself, my backhand stinks, but if you actually say it out loud, that's 10 times more powerful verbally to say it. Now, if you combine saying something out loud with a negative thought, which is what I just said, the backhand thing, it's 40 to 70 times more likely to happen or something like it. So every time you say my backhand stinks, you are creating your reality, if you will. You are perpetuating that concept. So um, I'm not going to, yeah, I'll stop there. And then uh, the second concept is around stress and emotional regulation. So depleting emotions like anger, frustration, sadness, you know, the frustration you feel on a tennis court, the frustration you feel in the office, you know, when something doesn't go your way, there's a bad meeting or your boss does something you don't like. That frustration that's inside of you is depleting your energy and taking you out of a coherent state. So a coherent state is essentially the flow state. So listeners, you understand, we talk about getting in the zone, getting in a flow state. Well, that happens when your brain and your heart get into sync. They get into rhythm and we get out of rhythm with our heart and our brain connection. And that gets us out of the zone. So when you perform poorly on a tennis court or in life or in business, it's most likely because you're incoherent, you're in an incoherent state. You're not connected. Your body, your mind are not connected. Your heart's not connected to your brain. And so there are regulation techniques specifically centered around, um, there are specific breathing techniques. One of them is called heart-focused breathing, where you actually focus on breathing into your heart. It comes from the Heart Math Institute, which is based on over 30 years of research and over 300 peer-reviewed studies. And you know, CEOs, Olympic athletes, pro sports teams, senior executives, Navy SEALs, tier one military, all of them are doing these exercises. And so I believe uh, the combination of becoming aware of your thoughts and the words that you use combined with connecting it to your heart and connecting to your body and, and being able to regulate these emotions so you can get into a coherent state, this is the secret sauce. Um, There's more underneath the surface, but this is really, if you can get these two things down on a mental and emotional level, uh, we could dramatically decrease the mental health crisis in the world, just putting our awareness on these two things. And again, there's more to it and there's more underneath the surface, but these are the basics. This is moving your feet. This is getting your racket back early. It's not complicated and it's, it's simple stuff. Marabon, right? It's not complicated what I just described, but it's not easy because 
you have to make these changes. You have to start changing your thoughts and your words, and you have to start focusing on breathing through your heart and other things, emotional regulation techniques. And remember the mind, the brain, it doesn't go towards the new. It doesn't go towards change. It goes towards familiar. And that's why the people that change, I have, you know, just tremendous respect for someone that's willing to go on that growth path and make those changes. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, that's why, you know, I want to ask you this next question because, you know, as you mentioned, it's something that you really have to commit to and work on it, you know, daily, I would think. So, I mean, with that in mind, you know, what would you say is, you know, maybe a simple yet very effective um, daily routine perhaps that we can uh, use to help uh, foster that, you know, optimal performance and also reduce stress as well? Sure. So on the limiting beliefs and the thoughts and the words from, from that standpoint, number one step is always self-awareness. Become aware of the words that are coming out of your mouth. And if you're not aware, get out a journal or get out your iPhone and open up the notes and start typing out the phrases that you say every day, the words that you use every day. Quick, quick little tip, another little kind of incredible, I think incredible data point. We have about 60,000 thoughts every day. 80% of them are negative. And get this, 95% of the thoughts that you had today are the same as you had yesterday. So if you start tracking the phrases and the words that you use, that will help you become aware. And then obviously you want to be clear on what you want to create. So what type of life, what type of tennis? I want to be an aggressive baseliner. Okay, great. You probably want to use the words aggressive baseliner over and over again, as you're speaking to the world about your game. Hey, I'm an aggressive baseliner. I love to attack the net. Most of the time, as you know, Maribon, we hear people say, I'm afraid to come to the net. I always lose points when I come to the net. Ah, my backhand's so inconsistent. That is not going to get you where you want to go. So you have to change the words and the language that you use, become aware of that. And you don't have to be positive. You can just be neutral. You can just state, hey, I'm an aggressive baseline. That's not a positive statement. That's a statement of what you want to create. And that's a neutral statement, which is easier for people when they're in the negative state. It's hard to go to positive. You can go to neutral. Around the emotional regulation, uh, you know, there were studies done that uh, 11,500 people were taken through a study for six to nine weeks. They did heart-focused breathing or coherence, quick coherence breathing, five minutes a day for six to nine weeks. And uh, sleep improved significantly, like 30, 30%, 25%, 30%, calmness, 30%, anxiety dropped by over 40%, um, uh, fatigue dropped by 40 plus percent just by doing this one exercise for five minutes a day. So even one minute a day or three minutes a day. So starting with that emotional regulation uh, technique called heart-focused breathing or, or quick coherence, it's something that, again, I teach in workshops and I share in my keynote talks around with leaders on how to do that. And this would really help tennis players before, after their matches regulate their emotions. Because remember, when you're not regulating your emotions, when you're in a frustrated state versus a grateful or an appreciative state, you are draining your internal battery. And Bruce Lipton, who is a world-renowned cell biologist, you're, you're nodding your head, maybe you've heard of Bruce Lipton. He says that 90 to 95% of all disease is related to stress. So the big killer is stress. So we have to decrease stress by changing our words and our thoughts and changing the emotions we feel inside our, ourselves. And so 
getting into that grateful state and that appreciative state is, is a big win for most people to, to start to go there. Awesome, Jeff. Yeah, and I definitely have heard um, some podcasts with uh, Dr. Lipton. Um, regarding stress, I was wondering, is all stress... Um, is, is all stress bad? I mean, is there any like good stress um, or is that just all, kind of all negative? And, um, you know, if it is all negative or, you know, partial, I mean, it's at least partially negative, I guess. So how can you turn stress into a positive? Mm-hmm. Uh, great question. And I'm going to get, I'm going to geek out a little bit on a little bit of science here. Uh, but uh, stress is actually good. Uh, mm. Stress is what prepares us for danger or for something coming up that may be perceived as a threat. So our primitive brain is designed to stay in safety and protect ourselves. So imagine a saber-toothed tiger uh, coming after us or we sense it or we see it. Immediately, our amygdala, which is the fear center of our brain, it's part of the limbic system, the primitive brain, it uh, fires a stress response. And when that happens, it creates a stress response. Then these hormones are released, cortisol and adrenaline. And that's all designed to get us ready for battle. The problem is that we're not dealing with saber-toothed tigers today. We're dealing with you know a nasty email. That's not going to kill us. We're dealing with someone who cuts us off on the highway. We're dealing with you know a podcast mic breaking down in the middle of our podcast. All of those things create stress and our bodies or our brains, they perceive it as a threat. And so what happens is you have that release of cortisol and adrenaline, and it's happening multiple times throughout the day, instead of the one time that you see the saber toothed tiger out in the woods, and then you're not near the tiger. Once you get away from it, you're not near the rest of the day. There's no stress. So what happens is the stress is good. It protects us. It gets us ready for battle, but it's only supposed to last for 30 seconds, maybe up to three minutes, maybe five minutes. It's not supposed to last for hours. It's not supposed to last for days and months and years. And many people are just living in a chronic baseline of high stress from all the things coming at them every day. That's the real issue. Stress is inherently a good because it protects us. But too much stress for too long is bad. And that's what we're fighting in today's Western world with all the stress and the fast moving pace, the news coming at us, you know, family challenges, business challenges, again, just everyday stress. And so here's the secret. When you have a stress response, you know, when the amygdala fires and the chemicals are coursing through your body, if you can do the heart focused breathing, and you can regulate your emotions in real time, and you can even practice before it happens and after it happens, just like training, you can decrease the stress response where it's only significantly impacting you for five to 10 minutes. It's about a 10-minute cycle if you're doing this breathing, if you're doing this focused breathing. If you don't do it and you're not able to handle stress, it stays in your body for up to eight hours. And that is the crux of it. If you solve that part, you're not draining your internal battery. You have more energy. You're more present. You're more calm. You can be available to more people. And so the good news is this is all based on science. It is not witchcraft. You actually change your physiology. You get into that coherent state. You get into that flow state. And it doesn't take a lot of time to do it. So if you're wired and tired and you're overstressed and you're burned out, this is one of the big 
big ticket items, along with some other tools that I'm not going to get into today because I've already gone into detail about a lot of things. But there, the good news is you there are tools out there to calm your nervous system, calm your mind, calm your body, calm your emotions. And they're, they're, they're not hard to do. So I want to give everyone out there hope that there is a formula, that there are strategies, that they take a couple minutes a day and they make a huge difference and they're all free. You don't have to, you don't have to go out and pay a bunch of money to try to solve this. It actually is available to you. It's inside your body and it's, it's based on, you know, thousands of years of, of our body, kind of our our body and our mind evolving. And it's based on the science and it works. So that's why I can probably tell Maribon, I get so excited because I'm like, man, if, if people could just breathe a few minutes a day with intentional focused breathing and they could change their thoughts, they could, they could transform. That's what I saw my brother do. Um, I like to think that I've been able to make a lot of positive changes in my life because of this mindset and because of, um, you know, the heart focused breathing and the ability to emotionally regulate myself in the moment. Yeah, I love that, Jeff. Um, it's very important to have, um, you know, a, a routine, um, you know, when you get stressed. Uh, it's kind of funny for me, my uh, one of the teams that I follow has been losing quite a bit lately. So I have this routine of watch them play and then <laughs> go for a walk and then work out. <laughs> it's just, you know, I think I do some a little bit of deep breathing, too. Oh, by the but, way, um, by the way, yeah. Maribon, about walking, what you just said, the research says that if you get out 12 to 14 minutes per day outside in nature, you look at the sky, you look at the trees, the research suggests that you will decrease your anxiety by 30%. So if you're behind a computer all day, if you're working and you're in an unnatural environment, if you can just get outside for 14 minutes for a walk, it can dramatically change your mood. We have so many things that are available to us to help us perform at optimal levels. And again, as you can tell, this is what I'm passionate about, sharing this message, sharing the stories, sharing the strategies to help people. Yeah, I love the passion there and really appreciate it. And yeah, also, I, one last thing that comes to mind is Andrew Huberman, who um, has a great podcast. And I see that you know about him too. And just, you know, getting sunlight uh, early in the day, especially will help with your sleep and a lot of other things too. Just a very simple, you know, related um, sort of strategy there. So uh, Jeff, you've given us so much great um, information and actionable items for today. I uh, just want to, you know, educate the audience as well about, um, you know, I guess, what you're doing right now and maybe how they can, you know, get in touch with you or follow what you're doing, things like that. Sure. Maribon, thanks so much for having me and and being willing to have me share uh, my, my framework, or if you will, and my stories around optimal performance, decreasing stress. Uh, you know, you didn't have to do that. You could have said, Hey, uh, you know, keep teaching the serve, Jeff, but um, I appreciate you giving me the opportunity. I think this is really deep work. It's really important work for tennis players and for leaders and high performers and for anybody for that matter that wants to improve. So I thank you for that. Uh, Obviously, Tennis Evolution is still running and we have a lot of courses and memberships. So if you resonate with my style, you can go check out the videos at Tennis Evolution. I also have a YouTube channel. Uh, But what I'm most passionate about now The next frontier uh, is around uh, being a keynote speaker for organizations and also um, doing coaching and consulting around performance management, you know, helping management teams, sales teams, organizations get to the next level. So you can go to jeffsalzenstein.com. There's some information there. 
be updating the website as I keep um, building out my speaking profile. Uh, a lot of cool things are coming there. Um, I've already been doing this keynote that's getting uh, great, great results, uh, getting testimonials uh, from corporate leaders. And so if you're listening to this and you are an executive or you're in management, you're in sales or you're with a company and you say, gosh, I think this message would be great for our team. Um, you know, former athlete, coach, really passionate. It's got great knowledge, great stories. It resonates with people. Uh, you know, hit me up, send me a message. Uh, Jeff at Jeff um, is my email. And I'll even get my cell phone number out at 303-882-9028, because I believe that just one conversation at a time can make a difference. You know, I did a podcast last week, Maribon, uh, uh, more focused on addiction and my brother passing. And uh, what one of the guests said on it, who's who's in recovery and his whole message is, you know, he's recovered on purpose in that he's helped, he feels he's on purpose in his recovery to help others. But he said, we're doing this podcast today and it may save one person's life. And what I believe is the things that I shared today may help someone get out of depression. It may help someone solve their anxiety. Uh, it may help someone stop drinking or using drugs or take that next step to get into recovery. So I, I, I'm really adamant about one conversation at a time, one podcast at a time, uh, saving a life or, or, or helping someone take their life to the next level. And that's, that's what I wake up every day focused on sharing my brother's message, sharing my message, and hopefully we can make a, a big difference in the world with this. Definitely, uh, Jeff. I mean, huge respect for, um, you know, doing such great work, such impactful work um, that is going to really help so many people. Um, and we'll definitely have um, all the links you mentioned um, in your contact info in uh, the notes below the video. So definitely check it out and I encourage you to to work with Jeff. You know, he, um, uh, you know, top, top level, um, super passionate. That's what, that's what you want. Obviously somebody who is, um, really committed and, and just loves, uh, his or her work. So, um, thank you so much to Jeff. Um, any, any last words, Jeff, before we, uh, conclude. <laughs> just thank you, Maribon. You do a great job with tennis files and with the summit you I've, I've watched how you've grown it over the years from nothing. You know, you created something from scratch. You're not, a tennis, former tennis ATP pro. You're not a former coach. You're a guy that's passionate about tennis and you are now one of the stars in tennis online and you've brought a lot of people together. So I want to acknowledge your transformation, your positive growth, uh, your ability to connect people and to make a difference. And so I want to know that I see that and I acknowledge that and I appreciate that in you. Thank you so much, Jeff. Um, so kind of you and uh, you're the man and thank you. And just, um, love following what you do and you just again you know top level stuff so really appreciate it and yeah th thanks so much and I'm, I'm sure we'll speak again soon but obviously best wishes with everything and once again everybody check out uh the links below the video uh to get in touch with jeff and check out uh, the great work that he's doing so thank you jeff and talk to you soon all right i really hope that you enjoyed my interview with jeff on how to achieve optimal performance and decrease stress, really important concept, and definitely try to take the top couple points at, uh, from this episode and put it into practice. All right. Uh, if you did enjoy this episode, I would really appreciate if, it, if you left a review for the show, and you can do that at tennisfiles.com slash Apple Podcasts, or just 
hit the review button in your podcast app of choice that you use to listen to the show. We just find that Apple Podcasts is the most impactful in terms of getting the show uh, to be more visible. So yeah, I appreciate that so much. And I also want to leave you with a quote as I do at the end of every show. And this one is by John Wooden. And John said, don't give up on your dreams or your dreams will give up on you. A really powerful one right there. So definitely keep that in mind. All right. Well, I definitely wish you all the best and, you know, keep improving your game, keep striving to enjoy the process and get better. And that's the main thing. So it'll permeate other aspects of your life if that's the attitude that you take. Um, Recently, I was uh, YouTubing a bunch of like self-improvement stuff, including how to be a problem solver. And, you know, that's what you have to be. You know, most of us don't have coaches, uh, you know, watching our matches and, and giving us tips while we're playing or in between points or whatever during changeovers. So you've got to, you know, think about what you can do to to solve the issues that you're having on court. So um, it's a great skill to have and develop. So, all right. Well, with that, thanks so much for listening. And I'll see you on the next episode of the Tennis Files podcast. This is your faithful host, Mirabana Ranshad, signing out. Thanks for listening to the Tennis Files podcast. For more tips to help you improve your tennis game, visit TennisFiles.com.